listeners. It's your escape from plan A for this week. Right now, it's just me and Eliza in the studio. How's it going, Eliza? So it's a special episode. Oh, actually, before we get to, well, I'll announce the episode. The episode we're going to have uh, the author Kenny Shu come on, and we've been wanting to talk to him for a while. He's written the book called An Inconvenient Minority, which uh, I think has gotten quite a lot of mainstream press, and it is primarily, I guess, about affirmative action or ostensibly about affirmative action. But Eliza, what did you think about the book? You, it's it's a it's a bit bigger than that, right? It's not just an it affirmative is. action book. I can I bask in a little bit of glory here? Sure. So I proposed this episode way back in what June, July, when his book came out. Yeah. I had pre-ordered it months in advance because I was excited for it, and then thanks to our um, Plan A member Chris, he's the one that hooked us up with Kenny. No, that was me. I DM'd him on Twitter. You did? I did, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I got him on Twitter. All right. Yeah. Delete that part then. <laughs> no, no, no. Chris Chris <laughs> got another way in as well. We found the plan A tendrils uh, are, are wide. We have a long string of pull and we never know who's, uh, who's talking to who. Yeah. So I read the book over the summer. I propelled myself through it at the pool within like two days and I was very excited about it. And I've been trying to get you guys to read it since then. And then uh, all of this all of this bullshit that happened over the summer with several Asian Americans books coming out, like um, Jay Caspian Kang's book just came out this week. And there's he's probably getting the most attention for such a like meh book. I haven't read it, but I, I will next. And I'm curious to compare. The most exciting part of it for me is the Bruce Springsteen chapter. Thunder Road, yeah. It's at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Philip told me to just like to keep my sanity to just skip all the way to the end. But Kenny's book, Kenny's book excited me because it is about a lot more than just meritocracy. It's it's about more than just affirmative action. It's about more than uh, racism against Asian Americans. It's more about it's, it's it's more than just China. It's like. I think the title says it all. It's an inconvenient minority. He goes into like all the ways that were inconvenient to everybody. Particularly, I think the uh, liberal, the current liberal. I mean, I think he gives a a pretty decent historical. uh, Like, it's not like expansive in its discussion of like history, but it is good at linking what's going on now with what is Mm -hmm. what has happened in the past. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's good at making connections, and that's. Like, we don't need the history lesson. I don't think any of us are really interested in that. Like, when I think about, like, what do normie Asians care about? You know, it's like, they don't care. I really don't think that they care about, like, Roe versus Wade. I don't think that they care that much about trans rights. I don't think that they care that much. I don't think they care at all about some abstract identity piece, like crying Mm -hmm. in H-Mart or, like, you know, Kathy Park Hong's urinal mm-hmm. cakes of shame. Like, no one cares about that stuff. No one relates. Uh, no one cares about bad mm-hmm. art friend. Because no one, like, most normies don't know who those people are anyway. And so, Kenny writes what I think normie Asians care about. It's, are our kids right. going to be okay? Yeah. Material, real material concerns. Yes. Are we going to be all right? Are we doing enough for our kids? Is the next generation of Asian Americans going to be okay? Yeah, I thought that it was an expansive book. I thought it was good at being a, first and foremost, 
Um, and I was surprised by this. Like, one of the most assertive books when it comes to defending and asserting, like, the importance of Asian American material interests. That it's okay to have material interests and it's okay to push for them. And I think... And he sees himself as an Asian American. Yes, he doesn't. Right. He's not looking at us the way, like, Kathy Park Hong or, like, JCK look at us. Like, it's like some sort of anthropologic study of like these people look like me but i'm not like them right and kenny sees himself fully in like you know asian normie camp i think you could detect it in his language which is a lot more it's pretty based you know what i mean i think um Mm -hmm. yeah i just think that the way he writes is a lot more based than like like for example um here's a paragraph that i noted So after more than 150 years on the American shores, uh, they, I guess Asian Americans, have not gained anywhere close to the kind of sociocultural capital that can fight stereotypes and political will. The kind of capital that stands up to Harvard University and says a resounding fuck you to their race-based admissions policies and dangerous exploitation of damaging stereotypes against Asian people. Um, That is pretty clear. Like, there's no hedging there. It's like, hey, Harvard, fuck mm-hmm, you. Mm-hmm. And I respect that. I don't like, <laughs> I like this, that. this fetishization like that of nuance because... I, I also mm-hmm. like that he didn't go there, mm-hmm. like us. He's a Marylander, by the way, like we are. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, right. He, he, he got rejected from the Ivy Leagues and ended up going to work Davidson, which is not, he went to not a school I'm particularly familiar with. Though I think they have a basketball team. North Carolina, I believe. But what do we know? Wes Yang said that we went to a second tier state college. Why did he? So. Why did Maryland come up for Wes Yang? You, you mentioned that. What was <laughs> um, Wes, uh, Wes uh, totally off topic, but like Wes Yang um, was talking about the the language that came from University of Maryland academics. Um, I believe it's undocumented citizens. He doesn't like that oh, phrase. Okay. And so he thought that. The status of University of Maryland, like the ranking, was relevant to him not liking that term. <laughs> I get, he went to Rutgers. Yeah. I mean, I I hope he comes on the podcast on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, I hope JCK comes on too. I've been I've been um, trying to taunt him a little on Twitter, just saying like, "Hey, he's so out of yeah, touch." Yeah, but he though. deems it. He They're deems it appropriate to write about us and our friends on on uh-huh. uh, in his book, but he but he would never come. He mined us for content yeah, for years, fuck him. And, and but he'll never come talk know, to us like, because he's just he unlike Kenny is the type who is ashamed and embarrassed to be Asian in America, and so he always has to maintain a certain distance. He's afraid of being labeled as a bad Asian, and we know what the bad Asian looks like, right? It looks like majority of Asian Americans. And Kenny is probably, JCK would probably consider Kenny a bad Asian. He would probably consider me Mm -hmm. a bad Asian. Yeah. He would, he definitely considers you a bad Asian since he wouldn't even name you. Yeah, he probably thinks he's doing me a favor, which I'm glad it wasn't named. But my point being like, 
he, he finds it appropriate to write about us, but he would never come talk to us. But he'll go on TMZ to push his book. I'm like, TMZ? That's like gut. That's like gutter <laughs> trash, dude. Like, you know? So he's not afraid of like hanging out with that creepy old muscular white guy on TMZ to talk about his book. But he would never come talk to an Asian American podcast like ours. Like, there's no way. And I, I, I said that on Twitter. I'm like, there's no fucking way he'd ever do it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, and I don't expect him to. Just to, just to. And if he did, I'd trash him on. Yeah, if he did, well, let's see, let's see I would what ask he does. him hard questions. So, <laughs> and I hope to. So we're gonna have Kenny <laughs> on soon, but I hope to ask him hard questions too because I have to say that I do not. I think, and I'd like to establish this with Kenny is. I do not judge I'm not judging him from the perspective of are you the are you a good Asian or is this the appropriate response for an Asian or does this make me look good or bad as an Asian or whatever. I have I just have an honest disagreement with him when I do too. I have mm-hmm. my biggest one is his definition of meritocracy because mm. I think that what he is defending is a version of meritocracy that is basically credentialism and it's it's like a caste it's like the new caste system. You've brought that up. Can you explain the difference for now so that later it's more clear to me what you're saying? The difference between meritocracy as a value or a system and credentialism. It's a counterfeit value mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. It is not I don't think that what we have today is true meritocracy. I think that what we mean when we say merit is, okay, so the entire reason schools, elite schools like Harvard and Yale introduced um, meritocratic admissions in the first place was because, you know, back then they were filled with rich boys who just cared more about sports and partying so admissions and the SATs were introduced so they could find the best and the brightest, no matter what their social or economic standing was. And to be clear, I mean, their goal wasn't, their goal, their goal wasn't that more kids would go to college. They just wanted better students in college, mm-hmm. right? Um, and like higher education today in the age of meritocracy has not improved any social mobility. It's just reinforced any advantages parents confer on their children. It's like a new aristocracy. It's just one hereditary elite to another. Everything that they tried to remove is back. It's it's still nothing but the rich that go to the but best that's colleges. What, isn't that what Kenny's trying to the say? The most elite colleges. That that is our system, but it's sort of like undermining meritocracy, which I think he seems to tie more into aptitude tests. Yeah, I think so, because he, he seems to like, well, he seems to, um, yeah, he seems to be in favor of like mm-hmm. a lottery system, you know, mm-hmm. at the college level, but not at the, uh, not at the um, yeah. high school level. Not selective high schools. I, I take issue with... I, I just find meritocracy less than inspiring. So I'm... I don't know. I, I just think it's like an all-purpose rhetoric of credibility, like even in moral debates, which I don't right. I don't like that either. You know, like everyone, if you look at social media, the people will preface all their comments with like, as a PhD in oh, poli sci, yeah. and like, I taught for decades at like this and this college, and they'll just name their resume before they state their opinion. It's like, why do you have to do that? Yeah. I don't care. Mm-hmm. 
Can I just come out and say I went to University of Maryland? I got, oh, by the way, I also got the most useless graduate degree that there is, the MFA. Oh, you, you so, got an MFA? Oh, that's right. Yeah. I hardly ever talk yeah. about it because it's totally useless. It's, it's the worst, it's the worst master's <laughs> degree you could possibly get. Um, yeah, it's a good time killer though. It's fun. It's a fun time killer. Uh, but look at how, like we, look at how we weaponize credentialism. Like, okay. Remember like, um, who was, who was Joe Biden's accuser in sexual oh, harassment? Um, she had a famous name. Do you remember, remember their whole big deal about yeah. her? Right. Right, right. And wasn't the whole thing that, like, she went to University of Delaware and so she wasn't as credible as, like, Christine Blasey Ford, the one who was accusing... Um, oh, yeah, she went to, like, Stanford. Brett Kavanaugh, because... Yeah, something like that. And it was, like, really? The, the like, the credentials of yeah. the... Yeah, pretty, <laughs> Believe <pretty> victims. <laughs> but only mm -hmm. if they have the yeah. right pedigree. So I have I have tons of problems with meritocracy. I think it I think it's yeah that's humiliating. it's interesting. Uh, there is um, a backlash against meritocracy on the liberal side, but not from the ID poll version or or wing of liberalism. I think one of the issues that I have with this book is this assumption that the liberals, the liberal progressives, are like monolithically defined by this critical race theory thing and it's it's not i think there's actually a struggle within liberalism itself as to whether id politics has gone too far or not you know i i don't think it's as hegemonic as he makes it out to be uh, i mean it is a problem i think do you mean like you mean like in terms of like cancel, cancel culture, culture critical like race kind of theory thing? yeah i think there is a liberal backlash against it as well mm -hmm. and, and i'm talking about leftist backlash against whole separate thing but mm -hmm. well what look what happened today it's like what what was it like what am I, what are the headlines saying tens of people showed up to protest oh, really? Dave Chappelle's show in Netflix was it a, was it I think I read bus? that headline like tens of people and I was like ouch yeah I think there was more press than right. there were actual people protesting because like no one cares because no one truly wasn't yeah. offended. Like, yeah. nobody was offended. Yeah, and I, I, and I think that... Um, I, I, I do think that the, the, the stuff about Harvard admissions and stuff has less to do with ID politics than it does with just, like, traditional institutional elitism and racism. I don't really... I mean, I think they may try to justify it using ID mm -hmm. politics and stuff, but I don't know if critical race theory necessarily plays that much into Harvard admissions. Well, so, if they're, if, I mean, if they're using it as like on moral grounds, I think that they are using it as a cover. They are. But then again, that was the courts that did that. Like they have to do that in order to stay on the right side of the law anyway. So I, I'm not totally convinced that ID politics is the hegemonic enemy that the book makes it out to be, though I do think it's worthy of criticism and I'm glad he uh -huh. launches that criticism. So, you know, um, the other thing that I wasn't, particularly pleased about was when Andrew Yang came up. Because every time Andrew Yang came up, I feel like the wheels come off, you know, and um, he defended... Well, because it's because you don't like him. Well, for a reason. <laughs> I like him as a human being. You, you know? think he's a grifter, but like, aren't all politicians grifters? Um, yeah, but I think that he has some particularly odious ideas. And um, 
one of them, I think, resulted in probably like the worst paragraph in the entire book, which was about the Japanese internment. Um, he was saying that he was defending Andrew Yang's much maligned, rightfully, op-ed in the Washington Post about how Asian Americans could, while, you know, be, while there was, let me read it. Although the coronavirus has inflamed anti-Chinese sentiment, there is opportunity and, and adversity that Asian and especially Chinese American can cast ourselves as fully aligned with the American proposition of freedom and liberty rather than the autocratic Chinese Communist Party sensibility for control. So immediately I'm like, why is there this like sudden sort of like flare up of Sinophobia here? Like I'm, that we don't need that. And then he starts to dig into this um, woman who had sort of criticized Andrew Yang along lines that I would have made. And he said the crooks of her argument, Shu's argument, her name is also Shu, is this statistic. 33,000 Japanese Americans served in World War II, while 120,000 were were interned uh, in the internment camps. Shu frames this as obvious proof that demonstrations of Americanness don't stop white people from suppressing and discriminating. I think that that's Mm -hmm. a pretty fair point with that, you know, with that um, stat there. But Shu also misses a critical part of the story. After the war, those 33,000 Japanese Americans who served greatly assisted in helping America normalize its relations with Japan, turning the former bitter contest into a pivotal friendship that reaped major benefits during the Cold War. Reaped benefits for who? Like, how? how is... For the 33,000 who, who served in World War II, um, some of them under duress because that was the only way they could get out of the damn camps. How was it later that they them playing a role in the normalization of relations with Japan, which was really a form of like imperial domination? Let's not talk about that here. But how is that reaping benefits for the Japanese? Like how you know what I mean? Like how how is that something? How is that a feather in the cap or reparations in any way for those thirty three thousand Japanese Americans? And what about the hundred twenty thousand in the camps? You know. And then so, and America signaled its gratitude towards those Japanese Americans by awarding approximately $38,000 in reparation payments per capita. And that's adjusted for inflation to intern Japanese Americans in the Civil mm-hmm. Liberties Act of 1988. Okay, $38,000 in inflation adjusted terms isn't going to come even close to the amount of land uh, that had been misappropriated. And that was the real crux. That was the real purpose. It was, right, a land it was grab. the land grab. Yeah. For farmers. So I think that... Right. Yeah, I will we'll ask. ask I thought that that was the, that the single worst uh, paragraph in the entire book. And it was also one of the most crucial paragraphs because that was one where instead of just, you know, uh, throwing stones at, you know, the, the contradictions and hypocrisies of ID politics, which I don't think is a hard case to make anymore. And I think a lot of people agree with it. I don't think it's a controversial point. I think that... The harder thing to do is to say, okay, well, then what the fuck should we support? What are we supposed to do then? And I thought that this paragraph was trying to answer mm-hmm. that, and I thought it fell way short. And this is exactly the reason why I don't like Andrew Yang. is because he talks a big game about, you know, not left, not right, forward. Let's not get mired in ID politics. Let's not, you know, and he's always trying to pretend like he's transcending the cultural morass. And I'm like, it's not that it's not that dug in. Like, there, it's not... ID politics is not posing the threat that people make it out to be, I don't think. So they're, they're kind of pushing off, I think, an easy target. And then coming up with this stuff. Like, you know, just... Like, saying that these Japanese Americans, you know, 
you know, ultimately they did the right thing in certain, in, in being, in playing along and being forced to serve in World War II, suffering like the highest casualty rate of any, uh, uh, company in, in, in the entire U.S. forces. They were the ones that got killed at the higher rate. You know, they were always doing the dirtiest of dirty work. And I'm like, ask them if it's worth it. Ask the dead if it was worth it. You know, I just, I don't know. That part really bothered me. And it, it, it almost ruined the book for me. <laughs> well, I mean, okay, when it comes to Andrew Yang, can Yang capture the attention and support of normie Asians? Hmm. Collectively, Asian Americans are one hell of a swing voter demographic. Yeah, but he flamed out in New York City. I mean, his his support was mostly Asian in New York City um, in the mayoral mm-hmm. race, and he didn't. It just didn't. It just wasn't there. Um, I don't think Andrew Yang. I think Andrew Yang needs to find a job at this point. I, I don't. You know, I don't think the forward <laughs> party is going anywhere. I think he's a. I think he's a so political think, stuntman. All right, so it's just basically just back to either. Democrats or Republicans in 2024 for Asians, or opt out. I mean, they're not going to consider or, yet, or don't vote, or vote for a, for an independent candidate, or you know, you could do whatever. Just because Andrew Yang's not in it doesn't mean you don't have any other choices. You know? Well, obviously, yeah, I know, but where do you think? Like, so obviously, Kenny's he's he's Republican. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's not shy mm-hmm. about it. Uh. And I think Asian Americans, of all the demographics, I think will stay pretty normy. Yeah, they'll probably continue to. They will stay swing voters, pretty much moderates, mostly independents. Yeah. I I don't I don't believe whenever I hear that like oh Asian Americans are like mostly Democrats. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> there's just a lot. I I I think that there's a lot of stuff in here that. Is is more? I, I like the way. I mean, honestly, I like the way we've approached it more. Where I don't think we're like a political activist. Group. Like Plan A is not really politically activist in that sense. I don't think, unless you you may feel different, but I think we're really more trying to just figure out. We're not necessarily figuring out like how to vote or who to vote for or what kind of like political movements to join or whatever, but just like talking through issues so that they make sense. That's it, and. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And I think that that is important and uh, a big enough step just to make sense of what's going on. Uh, there may not be a clear answer in in terms of like who to vote for, or how to express your you know your um, um like what's your preferred electoral politics or whatever. Um, you may have to do the least. I mean, it's up to you. You know, you could do the least least worst kind of voting and vote for Biden because he's not Trump. That kind of thing or. You could not vote and just say "fuck it," have you know, split my vote. You could vote for the independent. Uh, you could vote for Andrew Yang. Write him in. I don't know. Um, it doesn't matter. You could waste your, waste vo- your vote. You, you could waste <laughs> your vote if you don't think that either candidate is worth voting for. Go ahead and just blow it on someone that you know, just just for fun. I have a friend who wrote in Ki- Kim Jong Un. <laughs> All right. So, <laughs> before mm-hmm. we introduce Kenny, um, would you recommend yes, the book or not? For I, sure. I, I do. I, I've been recommending it to everybody in Plan A, and um, you were the first one to finally pick it up. Oh no, no, Chris and, read uh, it. Chris read, read it. Um, I would definitely because I of all the things. Here's the thing: I don't mind that Kenny's Republican. I think everyone has a right to pursue what the politics that they see fit for themselves. 
So I'm not going to, I don't knock him. See, here's the thing is that some people are. This is the reason why I think that no one is paid. No, like Kenny doesn't get enough. Um, he doesn't get enough airtime. Mm. And like other Asian American media people, they like pretend that they don't know who he is. I know that they all know who he is. And it's because he's a conservative and he's like automatically like the knee jerk response by some people is to just dismiss him. And that, that oh, bothers for sure. me. I, I'm there with I think Absolutely. I have no problem with conservatives either. I mean, if you look at my own voting record, I probably, on paper, most people would probably just call me a Republican, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, we've talked about this. I'll just come out and say it. You know, when, when teen, when you and I were at University of Maryland, I was in college Republicans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I voted for, let's see, in 2004, I voted W, then I voted McCain, then I voted Romney. Yeah. And then the only reason I'm a registered Democrat now is because I wanted to vote for Bernie in the primaries and they they took that from me. Yeah. So So I'm like politically homeless now, but mm-hmm. but like, you know, if you gave me a good Republican candidate, I'm not going to say no. Yeah, I'm not, you know, I I'm not um uh, you know, I don't think the Republicans is the equivalent of like Nazis or whatever, though some are. No, neither do I. Obviously, I don't. Yeah. I mean, there's some pretty bad fucking Republicans, but there's some bad fucking Democrats too, to be honest. Um, I mean, the Republicans are pretty bad. Like, I, I am not endorsing that the, the notion that Asians should become Republicans because of their. I'm not their, doing that either. I'm saying yeah. that we shouldn't dismiss people just because they, they like identify as one. Yeah, though, funny in this book, he doesn't even really say that. I don't think there's you any. You can tell. Kind, nah, kind of, not really. I, I thought that he seemed more independent and more of a. He almost seemed like an Andrew Yang kind of Democrat to me. Um, mm, he didn't. I didn't get that. Well, he, but it's. I, I watch a lot of his interviews on. Um, I think they mischaracterize. I watch a lot of his him. interviews on TV. I think they push him into huh? that sort of bucket. I think they're treating him as if he's, uh, like a Dinesh D'Souza kind of thing. And you know what I mean? Like they're. they're <laughs> Who is they? Who's the they um, that we're talking about? Here? Like Orion Grimm, you know, like the the. the Ryan Grimm was the biggest asshole. Do we have that link? Can we put that yeah, in, we'll the put in the show notes, notes for this? I hated that. Interview. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll link the... Um, so Ryan Grimm, also a University of Maryland graduate like us... Um, oh boy, he's so boring. He has taken over the rising now that Crystal Ball and... Um, what's his name? San- what's that other guy's I name? I forget it. It's like Sangar Anjetty or something like that. Or Sagar Anjetty. Yeah. yeah. So ever since they got fired... From the rising and now it's ryan grimm and like he totally bashed kenny on their show we'll, we'll, we'll talk to yeah. him about that but ryan grimm sucks yes. you know i read his book too and it's stupid and boring you know when i read his book um you've got people it's like a it's just like one long dsa <laughs> um Fucking DSA. Yeah. endorsement mm-hmm. like a newsletter so when the pandemic first like when, when everything shut down and like the libraries shut down for a whole year, uh, my dumbass had checked out Ryan Grimm's book right before they all shut down. And so I had Ryan Grimm's stupid book for a whole year. So I just read it. And, <laughs> you know, Ryan Grimm, you should talk before you before you come at Kenny. Yeah. Like and he, he just didn't give a up. shit about anything that Kenny had said about Asian. No, he did a whole interest? bunch of whataboutism, which we'll get into in the when we talk to Kenny. Because I want to hear, yeah. you know. Like I said, I think Kenny's coming of a place where he is actually concerned about Asian lives. Yes, he Asian is. Asian people. And I yes. have a fundamental respect for that. 
Um, he even has like um, like an additional chapter at the end of his book about uh, anti-Asian violence. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I would Which, absolutely wholeheartedly recommend that people pick up this book and, and support it and read it and um, chuck all the other stuff, like just like the minor feelings and the, you know, anything that sounds like it's meant to make you cry. You know, like it's... Uh, crying in H Mart. Crying in H Mart. Uh, like, the loneliest Americans. Yeah. Minor feelings. Uh, what is Gia Tolentino's book? Trick Mirror. Yeah. yeah skip all those. Just skip it. Just skip it. Skip it. Read this one. This is a good book, and it's fast. You'll read it fast. It's yeah. All right. It's very easy. So with that, I guess okay. um, quick housekeeping. Uh, apparently, uh, I've been told that our numbers have been going up lately because I don't know. I guess we've been touching on topics that people find interesting and relevant. Uh, hopefully this will this will be one uh, of those as well. So if you're new to the podcast, uh, just a reminder, we do have a Patreon that you can subscribe to where um, we release a lot of bonus content. So podcasts that you don't get on this feed, but on a, on a separate Patreon feed uh, where we release bonus episodes every week or so. And we also have um, a pretty active Discord, uh, which you'll get access to if you're a Patreon member. And the Discord provides you uh, direct access to us. So if you want to talk about a podcast episode or make recommendations for future podcast episodes um, or just chat about whatever, um, you get access to that Discord. And it's uh, I think we have only one tier. It's a $5 a month tier. And um, but you can give as much as you want, but $5 is the recommended amount. And all the, all the proceeds go towards... Um, uh, an Asian American Writers Fund that we use to buy articles from Asian American writers because there apparently is not enough paying uh, publishers out there uh, for Asian writers who have uh, really no home in terms of publishing th things that they want to say, uh, in particular about race, politics, culture, whatever it is that interests you. So patreon.com. Where can they submit their writing? Uh, they can su submit it to, we'll have the email address in the show notes, editor.planamag uh, at gmail.com. And um, the Patreon is at patreon.com slash planamag. Yeah, that's the housekeeping. That's the best, that's the most responsible bit of housekeeping I've done in a while. <laughs> All right, let's talk to Kenny. All right. Okay, so we've got Kenny Shu in the studio, the virtual studio over here. Um, Kenny, how's it going? Welcome to Escape from Plan A. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate being here. Yeah, I can happily tell you that I have finished your book. I finished wow. it in time for this pod. And I, I, I would say Eliza and I both uh, quite enjoyed it. I read it the day that it came out because I had it pre-ordered for a while, for a few months. Oh, wow. I mean, what an honor. Um, so yeah, I mean, so I'm guessing... You both liked it then. <laughs> mm -hmm. I have been yeah. recommending it to about anyone that I, I've been recommending it to pretty much everybody, but especially Plan A. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. I mean, it's, I think for Asian Americans, I mean, I go deep, right? I go, I go deep into the, the structures of society mm -hmm. and 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 how Asian Americans must respond to that, um, because I think that um, 
and and I talk a lot about the psychology, you know, of some of the pressures, the extra pressures that Asian Americans face, you know, to get into college or to get or to, um, um, you know, uh, or high school or maybe even the corporate world as well. So I think for Asian Americans, you know, this is a book that I really wanted uh, to appeal to with this market. All three of us have similar backgrounds. Like all of us, uh, Kenny, you and I, and T- we're all from Maryland. What? Huh. What part oh, of Maryland? Right? Yeah. What part of Maryland are you from? Uh, well, I was just, I was born in Rockville. Okay. So um, you're closer to teen than me. Yeah. Yeah. Although I don't live in Maryland anymore, but mm-hmm. I was born there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I live in New York now. Um, Liza's over in Baltimore. Where are you, Kenny? I'm in uh, Pennsylvania right now. Okay. Um, well, East Coasters. Um, I would say, Kenny, I would say when reading the book, um, the highest praise that I have for it, and this is this is the reason why, and we were talking to each other, Eliza and I, as to whether we would recommend this book to other Asian Americans, mm-hmm. uh, Asian friends. And I said, without a doubt, yes, I would. And I think, I say that despite, I think, probably some differences in our political outlooks. Sure. But I would say that the reason I would recommend it is because of all the Asian American books that have been coming out, and there's been quite a few, I don't need to name any of them in particular, but <laughs> I would say that this is the one book that seems to be the most assertive and unafraid of asserting like an inherent value to Asian interests and Asian lives. And mm-hmm. it's written from, to me, the perspective, a first person perspective uh, as an Asian American person, you know, living here in the now and contending mm-hmm. with real material realities and constraints and, and things like that, that I think, Eliza, you were saying represent what would be what a norm, what the normies you call would care about <laughs> things just, that actually just, affect right, people's lives. The, the vast majority of Asian Americans. Like if I were to recommend a book to my friends and family who are not like very, very online, this is the one that I would recommend. Like I can't recommend, um, Jay Caspian Kang's book because they won't understand what he's talking about with all, you know, yeah. uh, they, I can't recommend Kathy Park Hong's book, Minor oh, Feelings, man. because, you know, like they won't understand what she's talking about with the whole self-hate, like urinal cakes of shame stuff. Uh-huh. Um, I can't yeah. recommend crying in H Mart because no one understands what that's about. It's so abstract, like all this identity stuff. They don't care about it. This is something hmm. that all of my friends online and offline who are Asian actually care about? Are our kids going to be okay? Are yeah. we going to be okay? Are the ne- are we doing enough for the next generation? Yeah, and I don't, you know, I don't want to like, un- I guess, uh, undersell my identity, um, uh, my own identity crisis, so to speak, uh, of when I was in high school, and and yeah, I mean, I did have, I did feel like, you know, I was a, I, I had. I did feel like I was somewhat marginalized from society, not necessarily because of my race, but it just added a visual component, just looking at the mirror and being like, wow, I look so different from my friends and what it seems like the dominant cultural elite looks like. You know, I must feel some sort of marginalization from. And I understand that feeling and I sympathize with that feeling. But at the same time, it's a childish feeling, ultimately. It is the feeling of a child. Eventually, you do have to grow up. 
And yeah, it's something that Plan A talks about all the time is how if you yeah. still feel that way and you are our age, it's like you are emotionally stunted. Yeah, right, exactly. And you're stunted from all that you could achieve and that you could be in this country. And that that that's what my book is about, right? I mean, it, it's a it's a it's a pie-in to Asian Americans and all they can contribute to this country and how their values, their culture can really help America, the ordinary person. This is why this my book has crossover appeal um, to people who aren't Asian, because I talk about meritocracy. And I say in my book, An Inconvenient Minority, people rat, people hate on test-taking study people all the time, right? But the, the, the truth is, if you want to get a good education, there's no excuse but to practice. There's no excuse but to study. And Asian Americans who study twice as many hours as the average American experience, um, you know, they have a right to say that because we know that it works, you know, and we have something that we can teach the rest of America. And that's just one of those things. But I wanted to point that out. Mm -hmm. I have a question about that. Um, Go ahead. When you when you say because you say Asian Americans succeed because of our work ethic, our dedication Uh to um uh, working within a meritocracy, right? Mm-hmm. So your premise is that it works for us, but then right. your premise is also that it somehow doesn't work for us. What? What are you saying? Like we're transitioning to something where that's being taken away, and you're is this, this is a a caution? This is you're cautioning about the trajectory of where we're going, or mm-hmm. you know? Do you, you, yeah, you see my I, I like what you said um, mm-hmm. at the end where you said, is this something that we're transitioning away from? The answer is yes. Mm-hmm. The answer is our elite is transitioning away from this. This is why my first chapter is called a broken meritocracy, not a meritocracy. My first chap- chapter one is called a broken meritocracy because what happens is Asian Americans, they've come, they come to this country basically with no wealth, no generational connections, no white privilege, obviously. Many of them don't even know English. And yet they succeed because they work really, really hard. They study really hard, twice as many hours. They have good two-parent family structures, low rates of crime, low rates of drug use. They place a high value on education. Uh, they believe in rote memorization. Uh, that's an undervalued trait in America today. Um, and so they're able to, in one generation, transcend the, um, the, the poverty that they initially experienced coming to this country and that lasts into the second and third generations. And that is because of meritocracy. That is because our country actually does reward meritocracy. Um, and uh, we can talk a little bit more about that. Um, but the, the, the issue is our elite right now is growing uh, hostile to meritocracy. They want to replace it because it places too high of a personal and individual burden upon people to take responsibility for their own lives. So they want to replace it with things like racial identity politics. You can call it wokeness. You can call it diversity. Um, They want to replace it with judgment based on background. And I'm not just saying like judgment based on background as in affirmative action for black Americans or for Hispanic Americans, judgment based on background as in uh, the family brand and the family name is becoming more important now. Whether you come from a rich family uh, or a legacy family has become more important now in Harvard's admissions. In fact, one third of Harvard's class is legacy admissions. Um, So this where we are moving from a country of judgment solely based on merit and judgment solely based on what you can contribute to this country to judgment based on background and background that you often cannot control about yourself. 
Yeah, I think that um, the way you express it in the book, because I think like you're you're fighting an uphill battle because you're going against dominant narratives, and that's mm-hmm. always going to be a very difficult like it's just harder to because like you your your arguments i think take longer uh to map out right because you don't have like pithy phrases that you can fall back on that everyone sort of gets mm-hmm. uh whereas i think that this sort of like new sort of woke woke inflected liberalism uh which i think is a fairly new phenomenon um uh-huh. i think it's only like maybe a couple decades old uh you know, it, it it sort of has this cultural buy-in where I don't have to explain my argument. You just sort of like understand it because it's it's just so out there, right? Like, you know, if that makes sense. So I think part of the problem is in understanding the argument that you lay out, especially like in TV. I, I feel like the book was very different than the impression I got from watching you in YouTube videos where you're given only sound bite level um chunks to explain your position right <laughs> we Seems watched to... the ryan Grimm interview that you did on um the rising and uh he kind of he just like i don't think he realized it but ryan proved you right you know he he just kept trying to cram affirmative action into or he kept trying to cram asian americans into the black white race paradigm in the u.s and we just don't fit we're so inconvenient to that narrative but he's so focused on comparing us to other groups and saying that we have it so much better mm-hmm. i think because he um there is a asian archetype asian american archetype that i think grim is operating off of which is sort of like the dinesh d'souza kind of asian where uh-huh. they literally I mean, and this is this is something that I think that when it comes to media appearances, you might have to be contending against because this archetype is out there of the sort of Asian right wing chud that because they're non-white has sort of a surplus value to the right wing to say, oh, we're not all white racists and nationalist revanchists over here. See, we got this Asian guy that's going to come out and make our case for us, <laughs> you know, and I think that that they like the the left already knows the existence of that kind of Asian guy. And I think to some extent, and I don't know if you agree with me here or not, but I do think an Andy No kind of can serve that sometimes. And I mm-hmm. think a Dinesh D'Souza can serve that sometimes. A Gordon Chang can serve that sometimes. Michelle Malkin. Bobby Jindal. Bobby Jindal, yeah. And okay. I think and I think that my the the reason I think that there's a difference here in reading your book is you were really talking about Asian Americans. Mm-hmm. Whereas mm-hmm. if I read something from like a Michelle Malkin or something, they're just straight up making the same case that, you know, Fox, you know, uh, you know, your standard Fox news right winger will be making, but they're just saying, well, I'm an Asian person and I can come, you know, I'm mm-hmm. sort of like corroborating this as a non-white person. Mm-hmm. Uh, does that make sense? I'm just saying like, I feel like in media appearances, if you're an Asian person that deviates from, sort of mainline liberal orthodoxy um you're quickly sort of portrayed in that light does that does that make sense at all or i don't know if you yeah no i I know i know what you mean i know the media archetype of this kind of thing Mm -hmm. um i'm glad that you were able to appreciate the nuance of what's going on here um the um ultimately you know um i i wrote my book 
with the help of basically when I set out to write my book, I promised myself and I kept this promise, but I promised myself I would interview at least 50 ordinary Asian Americans, 50 ordinary Asian Americans, um, applying to college, applying for jobs, growing up poor, growing up rich, half Asian. Um, and I would ask them all basically pretty similar questions, which is where do you think you are on this black, white spectrum? Why do you think you're that there? You know, how do you feel about affirmative action? Um, how do you feel about Harvard's discrimination against Asians? Um, and I would get all of their responses. And, you know, and as I recount in my book, it's very divided and parsing through all of that is has been the most rewarding part of it. But as a result of writing this book, I really feel like I have a, a I have a tap on Asian Americans that I I do feel is stronger than um, what other people do. I think um, so, you yeah. succeeded there because in um, Eliza and I and uh, and several other friends, we've been working on this podcast for years. And that's exact. That's all we do. We just don't write <laughs> books yeah. about it. But this is this is going to be our 305th episode. Mm -hmm. Wow! And um, that's exactly what we do. We just talk to regular ass Asian people, and wow. we are regular ass Asian people. You know, I don't think mm -hmm. we're particularly um, you know uh, outliers in any one way or another. And I think I, as I was reading it, and particularly in the first half, when I think there was a lot of setup, there were mm -hmm. there were some things where I was like, yeah, this. I, this is it's clear that you have talked to people like, for example, um, you have this regarding um, uh, regarding. Well, let me just read it by not so by not so subtly driving Asian Americans away from educational opportunities. Intellectuals cause Asian Americans to question whether they should want to work in this country and engender in them resentment to create in a society that needs their talent. Uh, and I think that that was absolutely the case because I've spoken with you know, other people on this pod um, about uh, this phenomenon of reverse brain drain. And, it, and, and it's like exactly mm -hmm. what you're talking about. And it's interesting. It's like top. And what my friend was telling me um, as someone who grew up and worked in uh, tech in America and then has kind of yeah. expatriated himself, that it's the top tier Asian American talent that's leaving. Oh, yeah. And they want to go to China. Mm -hmm. And it's the ones with the most skills that are and the China first would out love the them to go to them. <laughs> oh, and they love. They would love, of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's people who there are, there are Asian Americans I know who are leaving for China specifically to recruit more Chinese Americans to go back, and it's working. Mm -hmm. And that the it's the most skilled Asians that are leaving first, and the second tier of talent is just waiting for their opportunity. So there is absolutely a reverse brain drain going on. But I don't think mm -hmm. people would be aware of that if they were just getting their cues from the media or just getting their cues from, you know, prominent Asian Americans that talk about this stuff all the time. No, mm -hmm. you'd have just have to talk to people that are um, making this kind of decision for themselves. Yeah. You know? So I thought that was a very interesting quote. I, I had noted that one. So. So do, do you feel like um, I mean, do you feel like when you watch me on these interviews and stuff like that, do you feel like I play into this? archetype of the right-wing Asian that you see other people do? I think it could be. I don't think you do. I, I think it, after reading your book, 
then I, I have a much clearer understanding of where you're coming from. But unfortunately, I think the questions that they ask you are so loaded because the only thing they care about is mm-hmm. whether Asian Americans are going to um, because it all goes back to that L and U formulation, right? Of yeah. of us being this oh, yeah. sort of like wedge group, the triangulated and, and one, yeah, yeah. And there is truth to that. I mean, I don't think that her theory was like incorrect per se, but it, it, it does sort of academic. relegate us to just being that, and that the only thing that we should care about is whether we're being used as a wedge for someone else. You know, like there was no consideration of Asian American interest as an inherent thing, which is my problem with that. So, so here's my, here's my take on my media appearances. And I appear in a lot of media. I appeared on Fox rising with the Hill. You know, I've been Mm -hmm. on CNN. They always, they, everybody asks me different questions depending on their slant. But the main message, and I, I'm pretty cognizant of this, what I'm trying to do for Asian Americans, I am trying to raise their profile in a way that is relevant to the typical non-Asian American. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and the main thing that I want to get out to the media, the main thing, and and I know I will never have enough time to speak on this on Fox News, but the main thing I want to get out to the media is that Asian Americans are the inconvenient minority. Mm-hmm. That's what I mainly want to get out because pe- that's going to get that always gets people non-Asians really interested. Like what do you mean? What do you mean they're not the inconvenient minority? And then I explain. Look, you have a country where um uh you have a con- you have a racial narrative right now that believes that whites are at the top and blacks are at the bottom because of various things, racial prejudice, systemic racism, and everything like that. Well, how come Asian Americans who came in with plenty of disadvantages in this country, um, and by the way, plenty of disadvantages in their home countries as well, um, could come in within one generation, they could succeed even though a minority population. I think that gets a lot of people thinking, and that I think is the service that I try to do when I'm on top media. Because I think that, because I think that your book is the one that like very offline Asians and normie Asians would relate to the most. Um, I thought that the chapter um, that you wrote where you explained Ibram X. Kendi's, um, his concept of anti-racism and, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of uncovered, like it sounds great on the surface, but what it really is, is actually pretty insidious and it definitely harms Asian Americans. And I, the other big takeaway that I don't think that a lot of people know is BIPOC. Why, why, why they <laughs> yeah. had to come up with that new acronym, you know, people of color just wasn't enough. They had to, <laughs> yeah. they had to come up with BIPOC. I think that's very eye opening because, you know, I, I think, um, I think even a lot of online Asians, people who are on Twitter all day, uh, I don't think that a lot of them know that. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I didn't know that either. Um, and the thing my, about Ibram, Ibram X. Kendi, um, I found his books impenetrable. So, you know, yeah. you, you kind of you broke it down well. Thanks. I also have found that Kendi doesn't have and I think a lot of um, the we call them just like blue checks. Like, we, you know, it, it's sort of like this. I don't know if you're familiar with that term, but basically like blue check verified accounts on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sort of like, like the, the media enhanced or the media, the people who have been like let past the gatekeepers. Mm-hmm. And um, Kendi is definitely one of them. And, you know, our approach 
on the pod is is quite a bit different. I mean, we're not doing media appearances. We're not publishing a book. We're more like, you know, in the in the sort of like the dirtbag weeds where we're talking with non-blue check accounts and we're mm-hmm. um like mm-hmm. you said just we're we're talking with regular ass people and one thing that I, that I've found is that there is a parallel like a lot of the blue check Asians that are out there talking on our behalf and I think you've you've mm-hmm. named a few in this um book of yours Certainly. uh for the, the the regular Asians that I know they don't either don't know who these people are or they don't agree with anything that they're saying anyway and the same is I've found is true with someone like Kendi that um, I have black friends who have said that Kendi is not representative of they don't think he's representative of, you know, like, you know, average person, uh, average right. black person um, thinking. And you, you mentioned this in your book, I think, like parts of it to say, like this assumption that um Black people and Asian people are always on different sides of this uh, SHSAT thing and, yeah. and and all this stuff. It's not necessarily true. That was not the case. Like Carranza, for example, it wasn't like all the Black and Latino parents loved Carranza and all the Asian people loved hated him. Right? It was. Oh yeah. He had a he had many many problems with white, Black, Latino, and Asian constituents. You know, all around. Right. So, um, I think that the, these these sort of the the gatekeeping has led in. Uh, a, a certain class of talking head that really misrepresents what the average person cares about and thinks going to Eliza's point, you know? So I thought you did a yeah. good job of unpacking that in the, um, in the book. I guess when you ask me, you know, about your media appearances, I just think you're going into hostile territory because I think you're going into a gate kept, uh, uh-huh. area where they are going to ask you loaded questions and I think that they're setting it up so that it sounds like what you're doing is an yeah. age-old thing where you're saying, look, Asian Americans prove that it's not about racism, mm-hmm. that it is um, entirely about culture and the reason that Black and Latino s- students are are not doing well is because they're culturally deficient. Well, I don't, um, mm-hmm. well, I don't really want, I don't, I don't want to say it's entirely about culture. That's, mm-hmm. that's, I need, I want to bring in the culture aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, look, I know just as well as anybody that rich people can afford SAT prep more than poor people. I just know that even among poor people, there are poor people who take advantage of the resources that they have. And then there are poor people who don't. And we want to be, we want our poor people to be like the poor people that take advantage of the resources that they have or that America has for them. And not like the other, because those poor people actually end up not being poor. And Asian Americans actually are the are the minority with the highest percentage of so-called rags to riches. That means people from the bottom 20% into the top 20%. Mm-hmm. And that is because they'd actually take advantage of the resources that actually are available to all poor people. Um, you know, New York City has free test prep. People don't know that. Um, but Asian Americans know that. <laughs> And they, they, they attend. And when that's not good enough, they go and they form their own test prep centers. And then they, they teach their kids for pennies on the dollar. Um, so I know it can be done. I've seen that it can be done. And so we have to talk about culture. Right. Though, is that sufficient? Because, I mean, I think the counter argument to that is, like, we might have structural problems where there has to be an underclass. There has to be people who, like, if there's a test, there has to be people that don't pass. 
And uh, this is like setting us up for a perpetual squid game to say, you know, <laughs> or what we really want is for you to get prepared for the next squid game and not be, you know, the one half of the participants that necessarily are going to get killed. And so it, there, there just seems to be at least a good faith counter to what you're saying to say, well, what about the structural inequity? Like, what about the fact that there are only so many seats at Stuy, that there are only so many passably good high schools in New York City? Isn't that the fundamental problem? And not whether, uh, you know, your kid can make it into one of these selective seats. Like, should we, you know, should, like, for example, like, uh, I read about this thing, and it's interesting because you bring up China in a few places. Um, Yeah. The way that uh, one particular city in China, I think it was Beijing, actually, addressed this issue. Because, I mean, this, this same problem uh, raises itself in, in Chinese cities as, uh, you know, unequal access to uh, education. They were like, okay, we're basically going to make, like, the top tier uh, teachers, we're just going to rotate them around the schools. So no, no one school will have uh, a monopoly on all the top teachers. We're going to rotate them around. You know, and so what they what they're what they're saying is like we need to make access to our top uh, uh, teachers more equitable. You know, things like that. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that I guess just in terms of how this, and I'm not saying that your book is like this, but I'm saying the media appearances are always going at this notion of you know, like are are Asians hogging up limited resources. Uh-huh. And our friend Jess, who also does the podcast, has – I guess I'm going to plug this point well, for before her. I, say, before before mm-hmm. you plug that, yeah, the question of are Asians hogging limited resources, listeners should understand they're only limited because the mayor of New York City is limiting them. <laughs> mm-hmm. They're not – but but I, I'll, I'll talk about that later, but go ahead, mm-hmm. please. No, I'm saying – well, the, the, the point basically is that is – should we, instead of talking about um, whether the real base problem in America is that we don't have a culture of success or we don't have a culture of, um, you know, using resources that are available, is the problem actually more material than that, uh, that we have too few resources to go around for too many people, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Are you making room for that is what I'm saying. Um. Yeah, so I mean that's a typical Malthusian argument. Um, Malth- Malthus, Thomas Malthus, the guy mm-hmm. who thought that um, population of the world was getting too high and, and everybody was going to starve in eighteen hundred, yeah. and then turns out we because of technology, we now actually have enough food to feed the entire world and make everyone in the entire world actually fat. Um, but the issue is governments are so corrupt in Africa and East Asia or Southeast Asia, that they're not distributing those resources that even we give them effectively. So that's why people starve in this world. Um, but so, but basically the point of, the point of that was that Malthus was wrong. Um, there are not, un, there are not limited resources. And even if you think like from a relative sense, even if you adopt the premise that there has to be a relative underclass, you also need to acknowledge the premise that the underclass in America is probably better off than a rich person would have been in 1850. Um, from from the standpoint of running water, electricity, cars, phones, um, access to information, access to knowledge, access to public education, 
um, they were they were at a scale factor higher. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's my that's my response to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but but with regards mm-hmm. to the Asian American angle, though, um, are Asians taking up scarce spots? So here's where I have to reveal some uncomfortable truths where um, that I also revealed on my interview with Rising from the Hill um, with Ryan Grimm. Um, the sure you can create more gifted and talented programs, but will there be enough people to actually compete competitively in gifted and talented programs? You know, the math proficiency rate in New York City is like 47%. Like 47% of people score proficient on the standardized exam. That's like the basic requisite to like go from grade to grade. And yet they pass 95% of their kids in math in New York City. And I mean, it, 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 there's, there's so – the school system in New York City has so is, – is such a failure – in its ability to, to actually produce human capital that that Asian Americans have have to the only Asian Americans are able to transcend that only by extracurricular activity away from the school system because they can't rely on the school system because the school system is so bad. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. the narrative. That's the actual narrative. That's what we actually should be talking about rather than Asians are taking up all of the good schools. No, I yeah, no, I'd agree with that. I just think that um, it's it's just a it's just a thing where um, there is constantly uh, a steering of this conversation towards what I was just talking about, which is like how do people process? And I guess this is your point: is like how do people process this outsized? I don't want to call it overrepresentation, but outsized success rate. Of Asian Americans when it comes to you know gifted and talented or magnet or uh, you know test scoring and all this stuff, is it pointing out? Are you? My question is: Do you think it seems like you're actually saying there is a structural problem? The school systems are not developing um, kids enough, and that the Asian you're saying that the Asian kids are finding success actually outside of the system, and. Mm-hmm. And so aren't you, in effect, really making a structural argument at the same time to say that Asians are the school, the, the, the existing structure, uh, educational uh, structure is so poor that we have to sort of like have a bit of self-reliance here, community self-reliance um, to circumvent um, the, the, the sort of poor state of schools in America. And... Mm-hmm. And that's how we do it. And that if that's the case, I mean, what you're, you're not really then saying, oh, then what black and Latino students should do is, make, is follow our lead and, you know, uh, go outside the system to, uh, you know, to, to copy what we do. Um, but to say that, no, Asian American success may be an indicator uh, of a structural problem in the school system that needs addressing. Is that fair or do you see what um, i'm saying like yeah yeah no i recognize mm-hmm. the truth of what you're saying mm-hmm. you could call it a structural problem it's a structural problem that can be overcome with culture but at the same time if our structures were better then it would need to be overcome with culture is what you're saying right or that or that the structures would be the base upon which we could start to reform our culture i mean i, I think the two are intertwined i don't necessarily believe that culture is this sort of like 
uh, comp- you know, I think at somewhere, somewhat, you, there was a very interesting like uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, essay that I re- read recently about how the Chinese think about it as sort of a hardware versus software problem, structure being mm-hmm. the hardware and culture being the software, and saying that the two are inextricable. You can't have one without the other. One would be meaningless without the other. Yeah, and so I do think there's an interdependence, and so in America we tend to get locked into this either this or that, but I, it might be both, right? Like we we both need there is a cultural component to this, but how can that culture of achievement flourish if we don't have the resources at hand to engender that, you know, across society, not just with Asians, you know? Um, and, so. Uh, the, the the problem in New York City is not a money problem. It's not a resource problem. New York sure, City yeah. spends the most amount of money per capita per student in the entire country. Mm-hmm. They spend nearly thirty thousand per child. Okay, the average spending per child is like thirteen thousand. Mm-hmm. That's more than double. And so it's not a resource problem. It's not a money problem. It's a culture problem. It is a corruption problem, um, and it is also a problem that is um, of the cultures of the people who are going to those schools, Mm -hmm. um, inner cities, um, and everything like that. Um, the, um, the, the, I wanted to touch on what you said a little bit ago, which is the response to Asian success, um, which I talk about in my book. Um, there are two responses to the fact of Asian success. One is you can say, wow, what an American dream story. They must be doing something right. Let's learn from them. Two, those grade-grubbing, test-taking robot Asians probably are just cheating their way up the test or test prepping, and you could become jealous of them. And, you know, I am trying to steer our country in the direction towards the former because I want people to be able to I, I believe that the recognition of excellence is the first step towards you being able to become more excellent yourself. And Asian Americans are excellent academically. We just are. And that's undeniable. But unfortunately, our elite, dare I say, progressive culture is turning towards the latter. They're saying to Asian success, you guys are taking opportunities from the people who truly need it. That is the... Um, Uh, black and Hispanic population. Um, And we need to take away your privileges in response, uh, even though you work so hard to get them. This might be one of the most interesting parts of your book um, that I thought was really well done in the way you tied that idea to historical racism against Asians as well as Jews was this sort of like two factor. um, I forgot you, you, you probably know it you know, since you wrote it, but the, the, <laughs> the, the, the study that sort of like f- took different categories of people, um, like the rich or white people, Jews, Asians, etc., mm-hmm. and ranked them on two axes. One was oh, yeah, competence. Yeah. Yeah. And the other was, was it uh, warmth. warmth? And that there was a particular uh, combination of high competence but low warmth that engendered the reaction that you were just talking about, which is a sort of like resentment slash jealousy. Um, mm-hmm. Is that what you just said? Is that you think consistent with that map, with that bias map or 
I thought that was a really interesting formulation. Mm -hmm. No, I, um, yeah. And Asians, I mean, I wrote a whole chapter in my book on stereotypes. So, um, I'm familiar with the literature on it. Um, when you use the word Asian, it engenders certain stereotypes. When you use the word black, it engenders certain stereotypes. When you use the word white, it engenders certain stereotypes. However, when you use the word black professional, and you just add one other word, it engenders a whole different set of stereotypes that are actually more positive and more warm mm. than even white professionals. Mm. People don't mm -hmm. know that. Mm -hmm. People don't know that. Um, and this is just based on surveying average Americans and pointing out various random scenarios. So yeah, there's a little bit of sort of, um, I, I would say, latent resentment against the word Asian, but uh, or against the descriptor Asian, um, and that that is was found in history. You know, Dennis Kearney, the labor leader in California, you know, accused Asians of stealing the jobs of the white miners. They he called them curs. He called them dogs. He said. He, that was the first sort of extensive campaign, and eventually he was successful at kicking Asians out from California. Mm -hmm. um, but now you see kind of a concerted effort to renew those sort of stereotypes, except it's not really coming from the places that we would expect. It actually is coming from the halls of the Ivy League. And school boards, too. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, like that, mentioned that big thing in uh, San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, but you, you guys need to understand where the source is. The source is Harvard. The source is the Ivy League. You know, the... Right, um, right. No, I agree with that. No, well, I mean, mm -hmm. let me just point it out to your listeners. You, the Harvard admissions data um, revealed, that the public Harvard admissions data revealed that people, every applicant was judged on three different things. Um, academics, extracurriculars, and personality. And Asian Americans score highest out of all the races in academics. No surprise. Highest out of all the races on extracurriculars. Lowest out of all the races on personality. Mm -hmm. And how do they measure personality? Well, look at the alumni interviews. The alumni interviews, Asian Americans score highest out of all of the races. Look at the teacher recommendations. Te teacher recommendations, Asian Americans score second highest out of all the races. So mm -hmm. it couldn't have been from either of those two factors. It measures things like likability, humor, good judgment, good leader, good fit for Harvard. And they rated Asians lowest despite no objective evidence towards it. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, was the part where you see, wow, um, one of two things. Either Harvard's own members are genuinely stereotyped against Asian Americans or... Uh, Harvard is just using the personality score as a proxy for race. Either way, it's really bad. Mm -hmm. the, you, you you landed, I thought, another great piece of analysis here, which I have thought of. I, I've thought of this in the past too, and I and I totally agreed with it. I'll just read from from your book. I have it written down here. So after all, odious is this is discussing the Backey case, um, mm -hmm. which is sort of the foundational Supreme Court case, um, sort of establishing affirmative action as we know it. After all, odious as they've seen, racial quotas are at least racial quotas are at least explicit about their intentions. They make absolutely certain why people are being admitted. In other words, for this certain governmental purpose of diversity. But Justice Powell called quotas expansive and instead argued for much more uh, 
for the much more expansive definition of racial preferences, which was to have no explicit racial goals, but to allow race to be considered as a, quote, plus factor for admission, as if vague and general, quote, plus factors were somehow more clear and transparent than an explicit quota. And I thought that this was a great point because, and I've, and I've noticed this, this is the thing about the Harvard case that makes me particularly angry because not only is there clearly, I think objectively speaking, undoubtedly some sort of racial cap in place on Asian admissions. Mm -hmm. And this is why we see that Mm -hmm. personality score, right? Mm -hmm. But because of the uh, legal underpin, because of the legal, because of that case basically, and the way Powell had formulated what is allowable and what is not. And you couldn't be too uh, maudlin about it and actually create the quota system that the UC system had at that time, right? (laughs) Yeah. So we still use race to cap you, but you have to blame yourself for it. (laughs) Meaning I can't even fucking blame Harvard yeah. <laughs> for for the cap. I can't even be like and you know what? I can't even yeah, no. take in a way like I can't even fucking take pride the yeah. the weird pride of self-sacrifice to say I know I was good enough for that seat. I just I'm Asian and I live in a country where that's just how the dice falls when it comes to this stuff. <laughs> like we're a society that just caps the number of Asians and fuck, <laughs> I don't, you know, that sh- sucks for me, but hey, you know, this is my duty as an American. No, you don't even get that fucking satisfaction. You've <laughs> got to go home with the, with the explanation that your personality sucks. <laughs> and, and that is the thing about Harvard that really pisses me off at the end of the day. And I thought that what you said there was the first time I've seen that expressed uh, just out in the open to say, mm-hmm. at least racial quotas are transparent. Yeah. <laughs> at least we would know what the fuck is going on. But here we've got to deal with this Harvard bullshit <laughs> Where they're like saying like, oh no, you know, yeah. um, the, just one factor, the, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it's it's yeah. driving people crazy. You know what I mean? Uh, mm-hmm. So oh, yeah. I I thought that was a uh, one of the insights that I thought was a devastating point. If you really want to internalize the point and, and ingest it, about how the need for, um, and this was I, I think the highlight for me of the book was when you talk about. Um, what was it? Uh, bur- what did you call it? Bourgeois social justice? <laughs> yeah, bourgeois social justice. Yes, I thought that that was a really, you know, that really aligned with my personal misgivings mm-hmm. with liberal culture, or at least the direction that it seems to be going. So kudos for yeah. that. That was the first time I've seen anyone really write it out that way. Thank you. Um, do, where do we want to go from here? I know there's just so many parts of the book. I want to maybe, Eliza, we don't want him to give away the whole thing in summer because we want people (laughs) to buy the book, right? True. Yeah. So (laughs) we can't give too much of it away. Um, Andrew Yang. That's where I was going to go next. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about Andrew Yang for a second. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You recently um, wrote an article, was it for Fox News? We were interviewed, I was interviewed for that. Interviewed for Fox right. News. Yeah. You were interviewed for Fox News about Andrew Yang and that you saw you saw a lot of Asian Americans uh, moving away from the Democrat Party, which like Tina and I talk about this a lot. Like I see Asian Americans as a humongous demographic of just swing voters. Mm-hmm. Because oh, yeah. they, because they just you know I I just 
these don't fit in anywhere. So it's like whoever seems to be paying them the best lip service is where they're going to run to. Sure. Why do you think Andrew Yang though? And like his forward party? Uh, well, uh, look, I, I like Andrew Yang as a guy. Um, I've met him several times. He went to my book launch for goodness sakes. Um, he, he knows about this Harvard stuff. Um, and I ha and I have a feeling if he really spoke his heart about it, maybe some, after he leaves the democratic party, he will finally have the heart to speak about it. He will probably agree with me on this Harvard case. Um, and it, he's an ideas guy. Um, and here, here's the issue with the, here's the issue with Andrew Yang right now, um, as the, I guess you would call it number one Asian American politician in America, even though he never has actually won anything. Um, <laughs> it's, it's that he's never actually won anything. <laughs> yes, that's true. That's the problem. <laughs> and you you can talk about UBI and audit, you know, and all you want um, if as a private citizen. But if you're actually going to win something, you need to build coalitions. You need to learn how to talk to other people outside of your bubble. Mm -hmm. And Andrew Yang has not shown an ability to talk with average people outside the bubble about the things that his book actually very cleverly addressed that I read, The War of Normal People, about the concerns about automation, taking jobs, everything like that. Uh, he could he could fit his his book, I think, has ideas that 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 kind of would make both parties uncomfortable. But he has to pick something and he has to prove that he can actually do politics, like do the politics thing. And he hasn't done that. And because of that, I, I don't think that we should give Andrew Yang the leadership cred of being the leader of Asian Americans that he currently gets. Mm -hmm. I think that's pretty fair. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think that's pretty fair. Um, before I want to go back to the Andrew, thing, Andrew Yang thing at a certain point, because you, you, sure. there, um, there was something about him and that, um, op-ed he did in the Washington Post that I want to touch on. Yeah. Before we get there, uh, there's just a couple, I, I'm just, I just want to go through a couple other things um, that you wrote about that I really enjoyed. And I think one of them was when you talk about Princeton, one, mm -hmm. the way you write about Princeton's campus really hits home because Princeton's campus is fucking ridiculous. <laughs> way nicer than Harvard, way nicer than Yale. Princeton is where the oh Ivy League aesthetic really uh, comes home. I thought that the, the focus on Princeton there was really interesting. And you had this, I guess you interviewed um, a professor there of math or physics. Um, math. The, math, okay. And um, he just said something about... Uh, he, had, he had taken sort of a contrarian view uh, about the Princeton administration's sort of like, you know, sort of vague statement about systemic racism and stuff. Yeah. Saying that it had a material impact on his program and that um, being probably the most rigorous mathematics program in perhaps the world, like, sorry, you need to come, you need to be prepared because you're facing up against a global meritocracy. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a very interesting point because... When we talk about meritocracy in America, 
um, mm-hmm. especially within the academic system, which still remains sort of as an unrivaled, pe- you know, the, the unrivaled system in the world. All the top students still want to come to U.S. universities. Correct. Um, meritocracy in America can take on a frightening dimension. And I remember this as a young undergrad at University of Maryland, which is not, you wouldn't think of Maryland as, you know, uh, the most competitive elite school. Oh, that's school. a top research program. Go it ahead. is a top research program. Exactly. And I was an, e- I was an electrical <clears throat> engineer undergrad and I had a, um, I had a PhD student who was sort of like my research advisor. Yeah. And he was from India. And I got to know him pretty well. He's a very sort of unassuming guy and, and very humble and very nice. And he told me that he was the number one uh, test taker. I guess they're equivalent of the SAT, but it's actually much harder than that. It was the IIT entrance exam. And um, he was the number one test taker in his state. And I said, that is amazing. And he said, no, it's, it's really not because I come from a small state, Madhya Pradesh, from the city of Indore. And I looked it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, 70 million people. <laughs> and I said, dude, 70 million people. We're in Maryland. There's only 6 million people in this state. And he was like, yeah, well, you know. And, and and that's what I mean by that. I think that is there is a fear to the meritocracy because um, in engineering, which I think it just – you know, and I know that there's there's more of a push for inclusion in STEM, but at the end of the day, I think that professor you interviewed is correct. Like, you either know how to do the math or you don't. You know, you either know yeah. how to do the engineering or you don't. And when you're competing at a global level and you're talking about like sort of like not really a top tier, you know, maybe like slightly out of the first tier engineering program, a rigorous one, but in America, not like a particularly standout one. Yeah. Um, just a good one. You're dealing mm-hmm. with people that outcompeted, you know, everyone else in a state of 70 million people. Oh, my God. <laughs> this, is, this is what I mean. Like, meritocracy in America is a scary thing. And, and mm-hmm. it, it, it can take on frightening dimensions. You know what I mean? So yeah. I, I think maybe there is a reasonable fear of meritocracy to some extent. And for Americans, especially after that first generation of immigrants, to want to shield ourselves from having to compete at those levels, you know, because mm-hmm. it, it mm-hmm. Uh, I just wanted to throw that in there. Because, yeah. I don't, mm-hmm. yeah. I don't feel like um, people should be all that fearful of meritocracy. Here's mm-hmm. why, you know, that it, at least in America, um, in other countries, I sort of get it, but in America, we have such an ex- extensive framework of universities. We have the top university infrastructure in the world. By a long shot, we have more universities per capita than any other country. We have, you know, uh, more resources available to these universities. We have a government that backs up these universities. Uh, so you don't get into Harvard, Princeton, Yale. It, it, let's say everything was a true meritocracy, and you didn't get into Harvard, Princeton, Yale because of your own merit. Now you have to go to Penn State or something like that. You know, uh, you're still going to have a ton of opportunities and you because of a free transfer system here, if you actually show that you actually, you know, are really good and capable of a Harvard, Princeton, Yale, then you can go into you can apply the next year, you know, Um, and, you know, I, I think that under that system, people would actually I think overall people would actually feel that it is more just and more fair. 
the reason why there's so much anxiety over college admissions right now is because Harvard, Princeton, Yale apply so many of these other factors in their judgment that are not meritocratic, Mm -hmm. um, but reward things like uh, playing the right sport or uh, being part of a legacy system or having an in with the counselor going to this school. You know, that's what's causing the anxiety. Being involved in the right kind of activism. Right. Being involved in the right kind of activism. I mean, you saw that guy uh, from New Jersey. (laughs) Is that him? David. Oh, I've I've never met him. I certainly. Uh, oh, you're talking about the the guy that um the Indian kid that you know wrote Black I mean? Lives Matter. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, you got 100 it. A hundred times that guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, yeah so he's yeah. literally going to be on the show. The activist, right? Right. Really? Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah that that's the guy. There's a guy who got into Stanford, and the only thing he wrote on his essay was Black Lives Matter 88 times. Um, so I don't know, say with that, you know, look at that, how you want it. I don't think that's meritocratic. <laughs> I think no, that's his dad is like the CEO of Citibank or something, right? Oh, that helps. Oh yeah. And that helps too. <laughs> that's like the real reason he got in. <laughs> okay. I didn't actually know that part. Uh, yeah, there you go. That's what I mean. You know, it, the judgment of these elites are not meritocratic. That's why there's mm-hmm. so much anxiety. I, I do agree with your focus on Harvard and the elite schools above all else, because I do think it is, I think a lot of like the, the schools immediately under them take their cues from those they schools. Do. And yeah, then it, like, it's a trickle down happened, thing. That's, yeah, that's look, always been the case. Look what happened to places like University of Michigan and UVA. Mm-hmm. Like they're only public in name. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, yeah. Right. And so oh, yeah. they definitely took their cues from places like uh like Harvard, and then there's like UPenn. It's that's the reason Penn State had to <laughs> had to happen. <laughs> yeah, I guess had to happen. Um, and I, you know, um, yeah. I mean, the higher education system is hierarchical in nature. There is a sort of not there is a sort of there's a ninety ten rule in higher education where it's like ninety percent of the dollars go to ten percent of the universities. Um, you want to be at the very top. Um, mm-hmm. Harvard is at the very top. Everybody wants to be like Harvard. So that's that's the incentive. So when Harvard does something or says something, people take their cues. When Harvard legitimizes discrimination against Asians, other universities will fall in line. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that mentality is going to get ensconced into our framework. Now our top public high schools are falling in line. Mm-hmm. Now they're saying yeah. we need to lower the number of Asians in Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Mathematics and Stuyvesant High School. Bronx Science, Lowell High School in San Francisco. You know, this is this is it. This is careening across the country mm-hmm. at a record clip. And if people don't speak out against this, this is going to become institutionalized in our country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. It, I mean, it looks like the SAT itself is uh, is is sort of is sort of becoming obsolete um, for a lot of. Isn't like UC like. Transitioning but that has nothing no to do SAT with and... Asians, though. The SATs, oh, it does. right? It does, does it? have something. To I do thought with it had Asians more to cause... do with the more. So they take away the SAT, the more uh-huh. people will apply, the more you can reject, and then you can mm. you have a higher you selectivity can boost rating. Your prestige. Yeah. yeah, I thought that's what it was about. Um, there's that. Although I think that's only really the minor factor. Mm. I think the major factor for getting rid of the SATs right now is because. Uh, Asians do too too well at them specifically. Mm-hmm. Asians and then to a lesser extent whites do too well at them, and blacks do too not well at them. Um, 
uh, that's the reason why they want to get that they want to get rid of it. Um, but it's because the SAT makes more apparent the problem of the edge of the racial achievement gap in our country compared to things like grades, which are basically like the great smoothener, because getting an A in an inner city high school is very different from getting an A at um, Lawrenceville High School or Princeton High School, where I grew up, mm-hmm. you know, um, so it's grades are a smoother. They're an equalizer. SATs are not equal. They're inherently unequal. So people want to get rid of those things that 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 make the realities more harsh and known. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's let's close with this. And I thought that this was, um, and I and I've noted a, a, a number of like what I thought were high points and just things I've thought but but or or had considered but had never seen sort of written before and i thought well this is a you've written a trailblazing book i think uh in many ways one of the most assertive and sort of unabashed mm-hmm. books about asian americans and above all written from the first person perspective as an asian american rather than sort of taking on this sort of literary distance mm-hmm. to say wait before i delve into the topic let me just tell you that i grew up in a mostly white area and <laughs> yeah. i'm not like the other asians but uh asians are very interesting <laughs> you know like that it was none of that stuff okay um and for that alone i it's a great book but Thank i you. do I have gladly to- assert my asianness and then leave it room to being critiqued <laughs> yeah so and and this is you know i was telling eliza like this is like we're trying to recreate the uh, asian american family dinner here which is to say <laughs> how do we asians come together and legitimately bonafide have a bonafide discussion about our differences not and it's not a personal difference it's not like a, it's a it's just like a difference in thinking and i thought it was the passage about andrew yang's washington post editorial where i thought okay you and i have a difference of thinking here. Yeah. And the difference was um, where I thought was the weakest paragraph in the book was talking about, um, I forgot her name. She also has the same surname as Yushu. She wrote a uh, a counter, a, a, a counter to his op-ed, which basically said yeah. what he was saying was, Although coronavirus has created um, a lot of anti-Asian sentiment and there's a lot of anti-Asian um, violence, and I know Andrew Yang is very aware of this, he said what we need to do is cast ourselves as fully aligned with the American proposition of freedom and liberty. <laughs> um, and you said mm-hmm. rather than the autocratic Chinese Communist Party sensibility for control. And I, I thought that that was a little bit of a gratuitous sort of use of xenophobia there to galvanize our sort of, you know, our bona fides as Americans. And then this is the part I want to talk about. Okay. So now this person, Shu, had written... Um, Conwen. Sorry, what was the name? Conwen Shu. Conwen Shu had written this, that, um, that this statistic kind of rebuts what he's saying. 33,000 Japanese Americans served in World War II, while 120,000 were interned in internment camps. And Shu frames this as obvious proof that demonstrations of, quote, Americanists don't stop white people from suppressing and discriminating. Uh, and I, I thought, hmm, actually, I agree with Shu there, right? But sure. Shu, you say, misses a critical part of the story. After the war... Yeah. Those 33,000 Japanese Americans who served greatly assisted in helping America normalize its relations with Japan, turning the former bitter contest 
into a pivotal friendship that reaped major benefits during the Cold War. Now, my question there is, or my diff, my 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 issue there is, reaped major benefits for who? Those Japanese uh-huh. who were in turn lost land well in excess of the value of any reparations that they were to get later. And the normalizing of relations with Japan, which I think is a euphemistic way to describe which what happened, which was we dropped two nuclear bombs on them and then essentially colonized them, um, <laughs> that uh, help assist, like these 33,000 Japanese Americans served in World War II. They were like put into like the regiments that suffered the highest casualty rates of like any regiment in the entire armed forces at that time. And they were, they were given, they were just made to be like human fodder. Um, And then to later say that they were uh, right to do this, that, that because that later that they assisted in America winning the war and winning the cold war later and, you know, making sure that Japan became, you know, somewhat of a vassal state to the United States. I just didn't think that that gave them enough, that that was enough to justify the argument that, or or to rebut Shu's argument, that that was actually a tragic thing for those, for those Japanese Americans. Sure. Did you look at the, the second part of the paragraph, which is, and America signaled its gratitude towards yes. these Japanese Americans by yes. awarding approximately 38,000 adjusted for inflation and reparation payments per capita to intern Japanese Americans. Yes, and I um, and I think that that number and and people have looked at that number vastly uh under and that's 38,000 adjusted for inflation. That number vastly undervalues the um, amount of land that was taken away from Japanese farmers in California and just Japanese people in general because <laughs> And a big, and we've we've had we've done deep dives into this topic in the past on the pod. Mm-hmm. A major uh, impetus for Japanese internment, and because the American government at many levels was very reluctant to do it, that there was a strong contingent of people, particularly in California, that wanted this to happen, specifically because they wanted to take away Japanese land, and in particular, and this is an interesting, it it it, it kind of kind of yeah goes back onto itself in in terms of how you talk how what you talk about achievement it was specifically the meritocratic achievement of japanese farmers in california that mm-hmm. engendered the sort of uh, uh, resentment that caused white farmers to feel like they were being outcompeted a lot of their land was being taken by japanese farmers who had higher yields and better techniques that they said fuck it i just want their land then just take it away <laughs> so hmm. i felt that the you tried to and this is my this is a major disagreement i have with you um on this topic sure is i felt that you tried to um massage this into a win into a historical win and a redemption for japanese americans where i thought that this absolutely remains a blemish and a tragedy okay mm-hmm. so no i i uh i see where you're coming from mm-hmm I, I understand, I think, what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, my point in this paragraph and in this section, um, which, listeners, it's in the third chapter of my book, um, The Truth About Asian Stereotypes. My point is about cultural capital. Okay, cultural capital. So, the United States has an immigration system. 
we allow people from certain countries and we don't allow others from certain countries. Do you know why? Uh, no, uh, please, because uh, we're friendlier to certain countries. Sure. It's, it's just common sense. And we're friendlier to the people of those certain countries. It's why we let people come in from South Korea, but not North Korea, really. Um, it's why we let people, it's why we let expatriates come in from Cuba. Um, but we don't let people come from, uh, well, uh, we're not friendly with Cuba. Right, right. But there's, but we're friendly with the Cuban Americans. Yeah. The Cuban expatriates. Mm -hmm. What cultural capital is a thing. It, It really is a thing. And sure. Um, and what Andrew Yang was trying to say here, which I'm not sure he totally said completely. Actually, I think he said it as about as eloquently as I would have said it, mm-hmm. uh, which is that Asian Americans, we have an opportunity during the coronavirus to extend our arms in brotherhood and truly embrace our other non-Asian Americans and participate fully in this American experiment by by by. Uh, but with our expertise, with our resources, with our knowledge of the coronavirus, you know, Chinese Americans were the first to be aware of the coronavirus in this country. I remember 2020, I was going on tour for my book or I was doing an interview for my book. And I was about to go to a conference in California of all Chinese Americans in January of 2020. And they closed it because they said, we're afraid of people getting COVID. And I was like, what do you mean where people are, you're, you're afraid of getting COVID? No one's getting COVID in America. And then two months later, everybody got COVID in America. People were probably getting COVID in America long before then, but the Chinese were the first people to know about it in this country. And what I'm saying is that if we actually showed our generosity to the ordinary American, and which some Chinese Americans really did, and actually... A lot really did. Sophia Chan was a story I talked about, was the first person to order masks, you know, for all of these um, um, LAPD firefighters who didn't have masks to do their job. And she was the one who gave a million of them to them. Um, if we demonstrating those acts of true patriotism is going to reap us benefits in the long run. And this is why I use the example of Japanese Americans, because America did treat Japanese Americans very poorly. But Japanese Americans repaid, uh, didn't repay, um, uh, forgave America for lack of better word, and nevertheless um, uh, helped America continue on. And as a result, Japanese Americans are some of the best assimilated Americans in the country today. They also were the only minority group in this country to ever get reparations. So this is this is something that you guys need to consider and that you should probably consider is that cultural capital can be attained and it does and it is worth something for Asian Americans to link ourselves to the future of this country because ultimately guess what we live in America we're part of this country we have a responsibility to build it just as much as anyone else does. That's a that's a fair response. I I I want to reply to that. Sure. Uh, because I think this is a this is this is something that, because this is an issue that we find ourselves in right now. Yeah. Um, and I want to talk about Asian Americans. I don't want to just talk about Chinese Americans because the hate yeah. crimes and violence is as directed across the spectrum. Mm-hmm. For example, there was an elderly uh, Filipino nurse. I think she was 58 years old or 60 years old, still working, um, just sort of knocked onto, you know, just randomly knocked onto the side of the sidewalk. 
died from a head injury. It happens all the time in New York City. Mm-hmm. Uh, a third of the nurses who've died from COVID in the U.S. are Filipino. But total Filipino nurses only make up 4% of nurses in the country. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. talk about some, you know, a group of people who have um, taken more than their fair share of burden in this. And what have they reaped so far? Mm-hmm. Cultural capital coming from that? What's the cultural capital that the Filipino nurses have reaped from that kind of level of sacrifice? I don't see it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we should get it. I just don't think we have, right? Uh-huh. Uh, or they have. Let's let's. I don't even want to say we here. I want to say they. Um, I don't think that their sacrifices during COVID have in any way, anywhere that I've seen, motivated the better angels of Americans to say, let's stop and really appreciate what they've done for us, mm-hmm. right? So I, I, I just don't think that having this faith that if we just show our better selves all the time, that eventually we're going to reap that reward, that America's going to finally come around and say thank you. You know, I just don't see that happening. And I don't think that the Japanese internment is a good example of that. And I think someone who put this in very stark terms that I've always focused on when he said this was uh-huh. Antonin Scalia. And Scalia gave us a speech at uh, the University of Hawaii Law School mm-hmm. uh, where he had warned people that internment, although technically sort of in the bad law um, realm, it's not exactly overturned, but he said it is sort of considered a dead case. Korematsu, I mean. He said, don't fool yourselves into thinking that that won't happen again. Right? He said, mm-hmm. uh, he said the, the key here is to understand that, you know, in times of war, the laws fall silent. There's nothing in America that would prevent that from happening again. There's nothing in the law. There's nothing in our government. There's nothing ho- f- preventing the darkness of what happened during the internment to come back again in America. And I think we've saw, we saw flashes of that during the war on terror. And mm-hmm. I suspect we're going to see some more of it. And I think a lot of, and I didn't see this mentioned in your book, that you don't see it mentioned in, in many places at all, but there is an actual ethnic purge going on in America called the China Initiative, started by Trump and continued under Biden, um, where they're actively looking to uh, find and prosecute Chinese Americans. And if you follow the case of like an Anming Hu, Countless other, I think, um, in, in in all these cases, you just have these. You mean for old, espionage reasons? Espionage reasons, and okay. the cases all fall apart. They never have any good evidence. They drop the charges. It's a complete embarrassment for the government. Uh, anyway. I would, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far as to say they don't have any evidence. They certainly have prosecuted. Um, we should like, go for through, example, there was a Wall Street hmm. Journal article the other day that showed that. An investigative piece that showed, hey, actually, Chinese hackers were using the app WeChat to try to stir up this. Uh, oh, but we're not talking about thing. hackers. We're talking about actual Chinese Americans that are living and working here, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, get arrested for visa fraud for lot, you know, saying that yeah. they, you know, all those cases have been dropped. I mean, just look it up. It's incredible. They bring the charges. It gets to court. The judge throws it out because it's like yeah. you don't even have any evidence. Mm-hmm. But they have a specific program like this. So what I'm saying is this: that at the at bottom. The difference that I have is maybe it's because I'm older 
or maybe it's because I focus more on this stuff. Maybe I think more about this dark shit. <laughs> is that when I see an Andrew Yang running around saying how we should put on you know more UCLA gear and maybe join the military, which is actually what he said in that, that case. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, I certainly wouldn't give my own child that advice. And mm-hmm. I think the reality does not justify or match that rhetoric. I think that the that we need to, as Asian Americans, be even more aware uh, of the things that someone like Scalia said, which is that there are no guarantees, that there is not this moral arc kind of thing where it's like if you put your best self out there, you will reap the returns. There's no guarantee of that. I don't think that the dead nurses, um, the dead Asian nurses uh, will ever really get the the respect that they deserve for their mm-hmm. sacrifice. Mm-hmm. I don't even think people are aware of it. So mm-hmm. that's that's kind of where I'm coming from. I, I know that's kind of a downer and it doesn't make for a good doesn't make for good copy. But <laughs> I thought, hey, you know, honestly, uh, I have this opportunity to talk to you. And as I'm reading it, I'm like, man, I really want to talk to this guy because I think like I, I just feel like this is the person that I would want to say this to because do you know what I mean? Because I think you'd understand what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, right. there it is. Well, yeah. I really, um, I really appreciate what you have to say. And with regards to considering the dark stuff, um, I certainly don't want my kids to be naive about what's going on in this country. Part of the reason why I wrote an inconvenient minority was to shed light on the dark stuff. Um, and, and to, to put light to the dark under workings of our elite colleges and Harvard admissions process and and show people because so many of my Asian Americans were blaming themselves for right. not getting into these schools and I'm like yes do you understand it's not it's it's not about that <laughs> yeah they actually are discriminating against you and when people when Asian Americans hear that their reaction is relief actually mm-hmm. they say oh my gosh like yes I understand now because they put so much pressure on themselves and they realize that that's not that that the world is sometimes is just a dark place. Um I want to go back to what you said about Filipino nurses because I think that that is the um probably the 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 best way that you could frame your argument. Um uh and I always like to go to the best way that that someone can frame their argument because I don't like to talk about the worst things that they could say. But the, the Filipina nurses who died from COVID, like you said, one third of the nurses who died from COVID in the United States are Filipina. Yeah. So. Well, they're just one third of the deaths are Filipino nurses, but they're right. only 4% of the total nursing population. So okay. huge outsized effects on Filipino nurses. Here. That's interesting. I, I wonder where they work and why that happens. And maybe if there are cultural differences, like maybe Filipinas tend to congregate in more um i don't know what's going on there i have i don't see any reason why it would be a racist thing why i'm not saying it's racism but what i'm saying is that they put their bet they made contributions they made they did the thing that that uh andrew yang said we should all do and they pay they they put their actual lives on the line just like those thirty-three thousand japanese americans who uh-huh. served in the war and suffered the heaviest casualties yeah. of all Well, Americans. a lot of people and- never get the accurate reward 
of eventually what they're entailing. I mean, people who Correct. die in the army will never, of course, receive the full reward for their sacrifice. Correct. And, and I think that that is, is a, the thing that Andrew Yang said that mm-hmm. I need that we need to make clear is, okay, it, right. You but may it want doesn't, to make- it doesn't excuse or it doesn't mean that you should abdicate your responsibility to sacrifice yourself for the greater cause. Uh, because mm-hmm. that's, mm-hmm. and part of this is because of my religious belief in the mm-hmm. fact that I'm a Christian, mm-hmm. but fair. you need to understand that the world is never going to reward everybody 100% one-to-one. That's just not the way the world works. That's not the way the world has worked. That's not the way the world has ever worked. But you yourself, and if you're not a Christian, um, Maybe you have less basis for this, but I know that God looks at you and he does see what you're doing, even when nobody else does. Um, And for me and for everybody around me, you know, that's the way that I'm able to reconcile this fact that there is great injustice in the world. And some people just simply don't get what they're rewarded to, what, what they, what they seek to get. Um, I'm working to try to create a more just system, a more meritocratic system, but regardless, there are going to be people who don't get rewarded in the first place at all. But that should not be an excuse. No matter what you believe, that should not be an excuse to be bitter, to be envious, to be resentful, or to be jealous of the world. In the end, you still have a responsibility for this country. And you shouldn't be naive like, no one should be naive about the fact that Harvard's discriminating against you, about anti-Asian attacks. No one should be naive about COVID, about all of these, about race in America and, and those kinds of things. But you shouldn't, you shouldn't be become cynical or bitter about it. Well, I, I appreciate that a lot. I think that this discussion, I think, is better than the uh, discussion in the book about cultural capital that these efforts are for in pursuit of Asian American cultural capital. Mm -hmm. I think what you're talking about is something much deeper than that. And that's fair. I think the idea of self-sacrifice as um, a spiritual practice, uh, or spiritual belief is fair, is real. Uh, But the framing of this as an opportunity for us to establish cultural capital is an entirely different discussion that I found in the book. And that's what I'm taking issue with. Not mm-hmm. your, your grounding this in, um, in Christian belief. Well, the, if well, the, the, if, if to, I guess to tie the thread to unbreak the thread then, um, mm-hmm. and to make the leap there, sure. um, people in this country are still ultimately observant and good people. And they, and even though you, you, your, your sacrifice may not be paid off now, right now, immediately, um, people will see what you're doing. People will see the communities that are coming up to rise and the communities that are not coming up to rise. And, and, and that will help them in the end, you know, they're, um, um, what's the, what's the, um, the, oh gosh. Um, that, that's where I think you get this idea of cultural capital in in the sense that really it's just about, you know, unless this is a totally corrupt and evil country, 
people are going to recognize and they are going to reward people who show that level of bravery and that level of sacrifice. Fair. Fair. Um, yeah, I think, uh, I think that's a good place to end it. Cause I think that was a really, um, a good explication of that, that I didn't, um, I couldn't get the bow wrapped around it when I read it, Got but, it. but I thought well, that here, that was a here I am. <laughs> yeah, no, I really appreciate it. Um, Eliza, any, any final thoughts or final questions for Kenny? Uh, no, I think that we are out of time. Uh, Kenny, why don't you go ahead and plug the book and, uh, let us know how, let our listeners know how they can get in touch with you or where they can find you. You're on a book tour right now, right? I'm on a book tour. Um, though I'm always open to getting new dates. Um, and you can find me at Kenny M. Shu on Twitter, on my YouTube channel, Kenny M. Shu. Um, Facebook, Instagram, same thing. If you want to email me, uh, you can email me at kennyshuwrites at gmail.com. Um, and yeah, check out my book. It's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, if you want to try to help out an author, try to get it on Indie Bound. Mm-hmm. That's IndieBound.org. I would really appreciate that. But I really appreciate being on this podcast with you guys. Appreciate you coming and on, Kenny. You are going to yeah. be in New York. Uh, is it next week or the week after for a book reading? Uh, I'm going to be in New York November 3rd, although I think that's a private event. <laughs> I see. Okay. Yeah. Great. Thanks for coming on, Kenny. Really appreciate it. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you.